Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with a partner. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, I hope you'll pick up a copy and start into it with a friend. If that's not you, then hopefully you'll get some people around you who struggle and go through the book together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we were in chapters 12 through 14. We did a wrap-up of the Passover, covered the Exodus, and then introduced the narrative on the Red Sea. One of the questions we've asked and explained is why were there so many plagues? And we gave a number of answers for that on previous episodes, which, by the way, are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. One might ask a similar question as we finish off the Red Sea narrative in chapters 14 and 15. What's taking so long? Why is there a sequel? As Leon Cass observes, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is not yet complete. And he points to three things that will be accomplished in the sequel. First, Pharaoh, of course, is not yet finished, which is amazing, even with everything that's come before this. And this, among other things, serves to underline the justice and sovereignty of God. Second, he notes that the Israelites are probably not totally sure what's going on here. They left in the dark. They saw the plagues from a distance. They're not really sure who's responsible for the hasty departures of Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, the Lord. And then third, in Cass's words, they lack the proper disposition toward God and Moses and toward their new independence. As Cass goes on to explain, all three difficulties are addressed in the immediate episode. It settles the first two issues and begins to address the third. Pharaoh will be finally and completely destroyed. Israel will be really clear on who is doing what. And they're going to celebrate and interpret this rebirth in the triumphant song of the sea, which we'll cover in chapter 15. Lord, help us to understand your character and your working through history and your power over nature, your care and concern for the people of Israel and how that relates to us. We pray that we would respond well to what we've learned about your character, that it would encourage us to obey and love more fully in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 14 and 15 today. We're going to pick up the narrative in chapter 14, verse 10. Last week, we had read the first nine verses, and that's where God tells Moses how things are going to unfold. Pharaoh comes out in force, and that's where we pick things up in verses 10 through 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So verse 10, they see Pharaoh and the troops coming, and quite reasonably, they're terrified, and they cry out to the Lord. Now, at least it's to the Lord, that's the good news, and certainly it's reasonable to cry out in this moment. I mean, this is something that should invoke fear. Reality is setting in, in a way. 
Chapter 13, verse 18, it said the Israelites were armed for battle. Chapter 14, verse 8, said they marched out boldly, but not so boldly now. Now, we don't know how much time passes between verses 10 and 11, but they receive no answer, or they're not waiting, and so they take their complaints to Moses, and things aren't so pretty at that point. They lash out against him, and note that they're implicitly lashing out against God. So it's sort of strange that they cried out to God in verse 10, and they're trashing God, at least through his leader, in verses 11 and 12. A faithless and amusing sarcasm from our perspective, you brought us to the desert to die. Later in verse 11, you've got a pathetic or false accusation. What have you done to us? So far, it's what has God done for them. And so that's been turned around to God doing things to them. Verse 12, the sad rhetorical question, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Again, this is a lie. They had said no such thing. Cass says this is the crowning touch and the credo of slavish souls, slavery before death. If we take them seriously, they're saying they'd rather be slaves than to die. And of course, we just have a general lack of faith here, second-guessing, wanting to renege on their escape and God's redemption. It also denies their responsibility and their choice to follow along and the claim that somehow it would be better to die than to face this present threat. When a seemingly supreme difficulty arises, they express contempt for liberty, which has its difficulties, and they prefer instead predictable and easy slavery instead. The other thing we don't know but can imagine is that this is a matter of community or corporate grumbling. One wonders about the individuals and the the dynamics of individuals who grumble, get near other grumblers, and then the momentum grows from there. So let's start with the attack on Moses here. Matthew Henry says they exhibit base ingratitude to Moses, who had been the faithful instrument of their deliverance. They condemn him as if he had dealt hardly and unkindly with them, whereas it was evident beyond dispute that whatever he did and however it was issued, it was by direction from their God and with the design of their good. In occasions like this, we should go to God instead of kicking the dog. They're frustrated, they're afraid, and that's all fine, but don't take it out on Moses. Verse 10, they gotten off to a good start, but it quickly degenerated into the criticisms and complaints of verses 11 and 12. David and the prophets often model this well for us. We take our difficult questions to God. He can handle it. We don't murmur and grumble. We pray, we think, we strategize, we act in community, good community that's going to encourage us rather than discourage us. Now let's talk about the complaints toward God. Again, Matthew Henry is helpful here. The Israelites were angry with God for the greatest kindness that was ever done them. So gross are the absurdities of unbelief. Where's the gratitude? This is an extreme form of what have you done for me lately? Now it should be granted that Moses had seen a lot more of the evidence than they had. And it should be granted that this is a terrific challenge in front of them. But God had just delivered them in a powerful way, and they seem unable to bank on that at all. Matthew Henry says they had as soon forgotten the miracles of mercy as the Egyptians had forgotten the miracles of wrath, and they, as the Egyptians, hardened their hearts. What an ironic observation. It's not just the Egyptians who are hardening hearts here. It's the Israelites as well in their complaints and their ingratitude. This is the first of many times that the Israelites would test God in the wilderness period. So this is the beginning of an unfortunate pattern. They will often panic, blame, and complain, and grumble. They will complain about discomfort and inconveniences. 
One point this makes for us is the limits of signs and wonders, that they can be powerful. We all imagine if we saw a miracle, then it would be different, and people would come to faith, and we would walk closer with God. But the evidence from scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, is that that's not the case. And so the limited power of signs and wonders is evidenced here. Their inability to remember even recent events is at the heart of the ingratitude and the lack of faith. And it's the same for us as well. Verse 10, remember they're focusing on God. That's great, but it doesn't last. And they're not focusing on the right things about God. It does not sustain them. Like them, we need to remember what God has done for us. This includes prayer and the word. We need to worship who he is and what he's done. And we need to rely on community and godly counsel. Finally, note the irony and the potential applications here. Just before their greatest deliverance, they were full of doubt, fear, and distrust. Alec Motyer says, God showed that appearances may be deceptive and that what looked like divine desertion was in fact the means of the supreme benefit. You may well have had a similar experience where your level of doubt is great just before the situation reverses by God's hand. We need more patience and more faith. Okay, verses 13 and 14, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So in this declaration, we have three commands from Moses. Note what's not here. There's no direct answer to their questions or the craziness of it. And notice his style as well. We read it as calm and forceful. Cass says here that Moses reveals his growing stature and courage and faith in the Lord. Moses opens with, do not be afraid, the most common command in the Bible. And when are we not afraid of circumstances? When we have a proper fear of God. The second command, stand firm. Literally, take your stand and watch. Very similar language from Paul in Ephesians 6, but his command to stand there involves a lot more activity to put on the armor of faith. Verse 14 again repeats, be still. This is a physical and a spiritual command. They're not to do anything, and then in their hearts, they're to be more calmed, to be patient with hope and courage. Matthew Henry says, in times of great difficulty, it is our wisdom to keep our spirits calm, quiet, and sedate, for then we are in the best frame of mind, both to do our work and to consider the work of God. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God, is probably the most famous example of this from the scriptures. I also like Isaiah 30.15 here. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. And they don't have any of it here as well, but it's offered to us and we should appropriate it. The third command later in verse 13, see the deliverance or salvation of God. So the three commands, don't fear, stand firm, and see what God's going to do. If that's the case, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. Verse 13, no more Egyptians, the enemy will be vanquished. Alec Motyer says, the explanations the Bible gives for the way life turns out call for simple trust and confidence in the God who does all things well. They are not logical patterns quelling the question why at a rational level, but invitations to trust, rest, stand still, and see the glory of God. Moses says the Lord will fight for you, and this is going to be almost completely God's battle, as deliverance and redemption had been, and later, presumably, there's not even a war cry here. They watch and move in silence. 
Remember also, this is their first firsthand experience with God's deliverance and their first positive moment with God's deliverance. There have been hearsay before about what God had done to the Egyptians. And the Passover was certainly a deliverance, but it was a matter of omission for them. As they heard the cries, but they didn't directly experience it, certainly in a positive way. It was the omission of wrath rather than something positive. They're about to see something amazing and positive in their favor, God caring for them, protecting, and delivering them. A few more thoughts on Moses here. I think we admire his patience in exhorting them after the complaints of verses 11 and 12, how difficult it would have been to deliver what he does here in verses 13 and 14. He had been warned by God, but it's still impressive. He's waiting for God's timing and agenda, and it points to the importance of patience in general, particularly for leaders. This is very different than his past. We think back to his first 40 years and what got him kicked out of Egypt in the first place. This man has grown a ton. It's not just his past that's interesting. We also have the future, and we know that coming down the road, he'll be passing the same on to Joshua. Notice also that he addresses their heart rather than their complaints. He doesn't really even seem to listen to their complaints, but he understands the heart behind it and addresses those instead. Now, where's this coming from? Well, it's a confident faith in God. And notice he's also going further than what God had said to him in verses 3 and 4. He has not been given explicit instructions to say what he says in verse 13. So this is all in spite of whatever doubts and not knowing any specific plans that he has this faith and patience. He's seeing the same circumstances as they are, but responding differently based on his faith and his experience with God. And he's trying to pass it on to them, to encourage them, to inject courage into them. Matthew Henry says Moses was confident and would have them to be so, though as yet he knew not how or which way it would be brought to pass. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 14 and 15 today. In the first segment, we did chapter 14, verses 10 through 14. Pharaoh approaches with his troops. The Israelites complain, cry out to God, and then Moses answers them. What will God do? What will God say? That takes us to verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So verse 15, then the Lord gets involved here. This is after Moses has said what he said and provided leadership, connects to the stand mindset in verse 13 that Moses had enunciated. But here God gives specific directions on how to move forward once they've been patient, once Moses has enunciated what standing in faith and courage and hope looks like. The punchline in 17 and 18 is built around the repetition of Pharaoh, his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. The verse opens in 17 with harden his heart, a theme we've talked about before. The end of 17 and the end of 18 mention God gaining glory. That's a theme we've also seen earlier. And this is gaining glory for Israel and the world and for all time. And then notice that those two are surrounding the key verb throughout the plagues and throughout this whole episode that they would know that he is the Lord. 
So a couple of larger issues here that require some explanation and discussion. Who's God talking to in verse 15? Is he asking Moses, why are you crying out to me? And then the command to move on comes from that. Or is he talking to the people? And if Moses, is this a matter of prayer and God's saying, okay, it's time to quit praying and it's time to do something? Moses has not neglected prayer or talk or action, but the time had come to stand and act on their faith. And sometimes that's the case for us as well, that we need to quit praying and take action. It cracks me up how often people will say they're praying about something when it seems evident to me that the answer's already been given and it involves them and they lack the requisite courage to move forward with what God has given them to do. We pray and hope God will wave a magic wand, but it doesn't usually work that way. He wants to use us as instruments of righteousness to accomplish his purposes. The Life Application Bible says sometimes we know what to do, but we pray for more guidance or ask for more input as an excuse to postpone doing it. If we know what we should do, then it is time to get moving. Dennis Prager says crying out to God is fine, but it never precludes taking action to the extent we're able. Pray as if everything depends on God. Work as if it depends on you. Or, more clearly, Alec Motyer says, here was something not even to pray about. The danger could not have been more extreme, and yet it was not a matter of prayer. It's time to get moving. So the specific plan is given here in verse 16, a raised staff, an outstretched hand, and as a result, the water would be divided. They would walk through on dry ground. Of course, this revisits the first plague, messing with the water. Then it was the Nile River. Here it's the Red Sea. Here it's to dry things up rather than turning it into blood the first time. And Moses is not playing any part other than participation and following along. The careful New Testament reader here also probably catches a connection to baptism. There's a great passage on this in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2 that we'll read later. For now, let's go to verses 19 through 22. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. So verse 19, the angel of God and the pillar of cloud go from front to rear. Verse 20, it comes between Egypt and Israel, providing dark and light. Maybe it's like a fog of some sort. The separation and protection here are the first miracle that occurs of many in this episode. Matthew Henry says, where they did not now need a guide, there was no danger of missing their way through the sea, nor needed they any other word of command than to go forward. And it came behind them where they now needed a guard. So I like Matthew Henry's point here that it moves from guide to guard. Verse 21, all that night turned the sea into dry land. Psalm 106.9 says he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. Psalm 114.3, the sea turned and fled. Verses 22 and 29 describes it as walls of water. Chapter 15, verse 8, when they sing about it, they'll say it was piled up. And of course, this is the most famous miracle of the bunch, miracle number two. Verse 21 says it's by a strong east wind. And chapter 15, verse 8, will describe it more poetically as the blast of God's nostrils. Verse 22, Israel participates, acting in faith and in hope. Let's talk about the extent of this second miracle within the episode. 
First, how deep was it? The Sea of Reeds indicates a marshy, fairly shallow area, but we know the water was deep enough to drown the Egyptians. If it was shallow, that'd be an even greater miracle. So we know the water's deep enough to drown a bunch of Egyptians. It's also wide and lengthy, maybe a mile. Got two million Jews traveling very slowly. Got a lot of people and a lot of stuff. The miracle's also amazing in that the seabed was dry. The Israelite wagons are able to cross. And with the pillar of fire and cloud and the waters released at dawn, we learn that in chapter 14, verse 27, the Israelites were able to see God's hand at work. And so the timing as well is providential. It's also worth some consideration why this miracle, why this experience? For example, why didn't they just go around the water? Why didn't God just make the water solid? Or why wasn't there a walking on water as we see later in the ministry of Christ? Or maybe eliminating all the water. There's the famous song about a bridge over troubled waters, the Simon and Garfunkel tune. And people have drawn an analogy to Jesus there, but Jesus is a bridge through troubled waters, not over troubled waters. And so God has them go through this intimate and powerful personal experience instead. God could have just zapped the Egyptians. There are lots of ways to kill the Egyptians, but this provides that positive personal experience that will hopefully be helpful for the Israelites' faith. There's another comparison to Noah's Ark here, that this is not just a matter of destroying, but also of saving. As we talked about before, this would further dampen residual worship of Egyptian gods. God is sovereign over nature. They'd had the story of the plagues, but now they have this direct experience with God having sovereignty over nature. It also revisits Genesis 1, as you have the rebirth of a nation, in a sense, And again, the New Testament believer thinks pretty quickly here of baptism. And again, a passage I'll read later, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, certainly fits here as well. It's also a good start and lesson for the post-Egypt phase. And the lesson here is that without apparent hope, God had delivered them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that's what's happened here. Matthew Henry says those who had followed God through the sea needed not to fear following him wheresoever he led them. This is the grand finale. It's God's glory. And it shows God's timing with history, God's sovereignty over nature, God's gracious redemption of originally undeserving and now complaining people. As the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 51, verse 10, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? And what's true of Israel is true of us today. Verses 23 through 28, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Verse 23, the Egyptians followed them into the sea. Verse 24, during the last watch of the night, the Lord threw their army into confusion, 
It's interesting that 3 a.m. to dawn, the last watch, is the most frequent time for surprise attacks. Verse 25, the wheels are coming off literally and figuratively, and this is miracle number three. And you can picture them saying at this point, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to go well. Nice touch of irony here as their natural strength becomes a profound weakness. You might imagine this is keystone cops or really keystone soldiers at this point as the wheels are coming off. Verse 25, you have fear and acknowledgement of God. You have a deathbed conversion in the seabed. So some more irony there. It's their only speech in the event, and it is to acknowledge, to know, and acknowledge God's superiority. Verses 26 through 28, stretching the hand out again, and the subsequent drownings. This is miracle number four. It's later described as the breath of God in chapter 15, verse 10. And verse 27, as I mentioned before, the daybreak allows the Israelites to see it happen. 28 also describes a complete victory over the entire army, at least those who followed them in. Not one survived. Perhaps a bit of hyperbole here. Chapter 15, verse 4, when they sing about it, they say the best of Pharaoh's troops. But this is a short and sweet, matter-of-fact description of the victory, as with Passover. Remember how short and sweet that was. One wonders if any of Pharaoh's soldiers turned back and responded in fear of God and therefore in faith. Of course, we don't read about that, and that's not the purpose of the narrative anyway. Obviously, it's to talk about the complete deliverance and destruction of Egypt's army and Israel as a people who are now free. Pointing forward, all this will be for Israel's faith in the victory that's happened here and will happen in the future, and for the Canaanite terror we read about, for example, both of those in Joshua 2. Finally, Cass on justice here I think is interesting. He says, judgment is literally executed, and poetic justice is rendered against the nation that sought to drown Israel's literal firstborn. The tenth plague had killed the firstborn, and now this Red Sea deliverance drowns them as Egypt had looked to do to the people of Israel. Let me wrap up by finally reading 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And the picture here is wonderful. Ian Thomas says, So the enemy was buried in the place of death while God's people passed on through the place of death into a new land and a new life. And that's what baptism is for the believer. Verses 29 through 31, But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. So 29 and 30 provides a recap. 30 talks about the dead bodies on the shore, which would have been a grim memorial, and a terrific irony given the, the care A terrific irony given the great care that Egypt usually gave for and their talent with dead bodies. A few more small points. Verse 30 has the verb saved, and it's the same word in the Hebrew as the noun in verse 13 that was translated deliverance. It was a noun as it's being announced, and they had just experienced it as a verb by the hand of God. Verse 30 also has the first reference to Israel without any descriptor. There's no children of Israel, congregation of Israel. As Cass notes here, the nation of Israel comes into being here. And then finally, the result. 
They feared God the first time it's mentioned for them, and they trusted God and Moses separately, not just together, but as separate entities. Of course, this is going to fluctuate considerably in the future, but this is a wonderful moment after a terrific victory. Cass observes a few things here. It's not only because of the Lord's demonstrated power, but also because he and Moses told them the truth, made good on their promises, and delivered them from their oppressors against all expectations. And they put their trust not only in the Lord, but also in Moses, but also without conflating Moses and God. And that's not so easy to do if you think about it. Moses is waving his hands and these great things happen, but the people are clear that Moses is an agent of God. Moses is not God. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 14 and 15 today. The first two segments we did Exodus 14, which is finishing off the Egyptians by finishing off the Red Sea narrative. Chapter 15 has two things about water, interestingly. The first is a long praise about water, looking back to the events of chapter 14, and the chapter ends with a brief story about complaining about water as they start into their wilderness journey. The Song of Praise goes from verses 1 through 21. I'll read it fairly quickly, but have a number of introductory remarks before I do that reading. The first thing is to note that in terms of style, this is the first biblical combination of prose narrative and a hymn of praise. Another prominent example of this is in Judges 4 and 5. It was a common contemporary literary style, but typically it would be used to praise man rather than God who's being praised here. Now, this is to remember within worship and to continue to know. Remember, that's the top verb in the plagues. And how do we continue to know? It's through remembering the things that we know, remembering the things that God has done, remembering his character and the like. And the vehicle here is song. Eugene Peterson says, song is heightened speech. It does not explain it. It expresses because God and therefore the worship of God cannot be reduced to the rational Song has always been basic to the act of worship, and he also describes this as a national anthem for the Israelites. Cass says, song is humankind's venerable way of expressing, but also forming, directing, and educating emotion. It bespeaks the heart, it lifts the soul, it shapes the sentiments. Moses takes advantage of the people's new trust in him to interpret what they have seen to make it memorable and memorizable words that will enable Israel to recall and share publicly, Cass then compares it to the Gettysburg Address or perhaps the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The effort here is to teach and to inspire. Cass continues, he turns the people toward the Lord. Powerful right hand of God, it also speaks of his love, his care, and his holiness. Even though it sings mainly of war, the song enables the people to envision a future of peace. But Cass also notes that song can cut both ways. It's pretty funny when he wraps up his discussion. He says, well, I may have overdone it. And he talks about the dangers of song, any song of triumph in particular, that it shouldn't be the spectacle of dancing on the graves of your enemies. It can unleash unruly passions and pride. It can get you drunk on the belief that God fights always on our side, thinking of the Lord only in terms of war. Dennis Prager picks up the same theme in citing a passage from the Talmud, which are old Jewish commentaries on the scriptures, 
that the angels also broke out in song here and God rebuked them. If that's true, it's interesting that God didn't rebuke Moses and the Israelites, but maybe he figures the angels should know better. So what's the potential problem of the song in that light? It's that the death of those doing evil is ultimately a human tragedy. It is infinitely less tragic than the alternative, but we wonder whether we should celebrate the fall of evil people and the consequent saving of the innocent. The answer is yes, but... As Prager concludes, this Talmudic story achieves two important purposes. It reminds us that even one's enemies, even those who do evil, are still human beings created in God's image, and it forces us to ask moral questions. One more thought on the potential trouble with song. Remember the Bible's first and only previous song? It was Cain's descendant Lamech, who composed a song of bragging to his two wives. So we trust that this song is much better, but there's still reason to worry at times about song. There's about 25 Old Testament references to the crossing of the Red Sea. Pink observes, whenever the servants of God would remind the people of the Lord's power and greatness, references almost always made to what he wrought for them at the Red Sea. Again, this is a big deal. God's sovereignty over nature and history and in front of witnesses for biblical history. For example, the splitting of the sea is the key moment here. The Egyptian deaths are ignored or secondary. It's nothing about revenge or rejoicing at their downfall. The waters were divided, as Israel's history was also, from here to the wilderness. This has been a big moment. It's before Red Sea and after Red Sea in terms of Israel's history. Pharaoh was in charge, and now God is in charge. When we're reading this together, notice the use of anthropomorphisms. That's a $2 word for using human characteristics to describe God. Verse 3 will have warrior, 6 and 12, his right hand, 8 his nostrils, 10 his breath, 16 his arm, 17 his hands. Typically, anthropomorphisms are used to show God's human side, so to speak, but here it ironically extends our view of God's power, that it's even with his nostrils, so to speak, that the sea would be parted. But it's not just about God's power and sovereignty, it's his care for his people in rescue and deliverance, as Pink puts it, by purchase and by power. They have victory over their past. Nahum Sarna says, with this event, the fear and the threat of Egypt is finally removed. Yes, they still have baggage from 400 years of slavery, but they're freed from that bondage. And in response to God's care for them, they respond in verse 2 with the Lord. And in the Hebrew, this is the diminutive form of Yahweh as Yah. And this is similar to the Greek term Abba, which we translate Daddy, uh, from in the English from the Greek, and it expresses affection and devotion of the people for the God who cares for them. The last thing to say by way of introduction is to note that the Lord acted in chapter 14 and the people sang in chapter 15. They have no other part to play here other than walking through the water walls and displaying faith. This is God's glory alone. This is God's grace, God's power, God's might and sovereignty. Alec Motyer says they expressed their joy at entering freely into the good of what the Lord had done for them. And of course, for the believer, this points us to the cross and the resurrection at our justification that we're made right with God. Motyer says the experience of the Red Sea stands in the same relationship to their Passover redemption as a resurrection of Jesus does to his cross. The cross is the finished work of salvation. The resurrection is that act of God which confirms the reality of the finished work and gives us assurance that our sins have indeed been forgiven and our eternity made secure. 
So the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead and knew for certain that they themselves were saved and that the past was past. And so we too should sing the praises of a God who delivers us from and gives us evident victory over our past. Again, we may have baggage like the Israelites do, but we still celebrate the deliverance from bondage that God has executed. Now, Israel, without the Holy Spirit and coming out of the slave background, is going to have tremendous trouble here, right? They had groaning and bondage, uh, complaining just before this moment in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, and they're going to start grumbling again quickly, right? But for now, at least, they're giving glory to God. So now let's read chapter 15. Commentators divide it into three parts. They disagree a bit on exactly where to divide it. So I'm going to divide it with verses 1 through 5, 6 through 12, and then 13 through 18. So let's start with 1 through 5. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. A number of military references here, both with respect to Pharaoh and God. Horse and rider, those are instruments and agents of war. Verse 3 calls God a warrior. And the phrase translated by the NIV, I will praise him, is literally, I will decorate him. And this is language that would be used to talk about awards after a battle. But for all that, I think my favorite part here is the early part of verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and my salvation. Verses 6 through 12, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. So this is in the style of an imprecatory psalm. It's a fancy word meaning calling down curses on enemies, although these enemies have been defeated. Tons of references to God here. In particular, his hands, verse 6 and 12, are the bookends of this passage. And look what's in the middle, the enemy's confidence in his own hand. And that's the contrast that the song brings out. Verses 8 and 10 switches gears to breath as a metaphor. His mere breath is enough to do all of this. And then verse 11 is awesome. The key question, who is like you? It's the gods of Egypt versus the God of Israel. And it's the God of the universe, the God of Israel, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Verses 13 through 18, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. 
the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I love the combo in verse 13, the love and strength of God. 14 through 16, we've got this predisposition to fear, and this is the approximate route to Canaan and the battle with their potential enemies. Now, this is not going to be enough to get them into the promised land, not to bolster their faith in Numbers 13 and 14, but this is what God had in store for them if they would follow in faith. Verses 16 and 17 talk about the future promised land, and it's nice to see Moses make that application here. Verse 18 is the ultimate It ends as it began with God. And then finally, a postscript in verses 19 through 21. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So verse 19 provides a recap of the action in chapter 14. Then verse 20, we're introduced to Moses' sister. Now, of course, we know her from chapter 2, but her name is given to us at this point. She's the first prophetess and a leader here, and she leads a song with all the women and repeats the opening of the song that we just covered back in verse 1. Interesting that the men in verse 1 and the women in verse 20 express the totality of the people of Israel. Cass makes a number of cool observations here. He says, out of nowhere with no introduction, Miriam appears and for the first time by name, but she was also at the start of Moses' Egyptian story. Here she is again at the end of Moses' Egyptian story and again by the waters celebrating the defeat of those who would have drowned him. Cass also notes that the next time we hear of dancing, it's going to be the orgy around the golden calf in chapter 32 where Aaron, Miriam's brother, had let the people loose. So hopefully the dancing here is an innocent version of what the golden calf shows us to be a perversion, but the danger of the latter may be contained in the former. And so I think here we have a reminder of, for example, money. Money is neutral, but it can go for good or ill. The money that's taken out of Egypt will be used to make the golden calf, but some of it will be used for the tabernacle. Dancing can be fine in praise, but dancing can lead to other problems as it does with the golden calf. Finally, Cass has one more cool point to make here. He says, women get the last scene and the last words in the story of Israel and Egypt, just as women had the first scene and the first words at the very beginning. And it's to reassert the supremacy of the principle of life against the largely masculine battle-glorying singing of the men. The song of the sea, glorious though it is, left out something vitally important. To the song of death-dealing victory and war must be added the dance of life and love and peace. One last quote from Cass as we wrap up this first section of Exodus. He notes that Moses managed to kill one Egyptian oppressor and could not resolve a dispute between two fighting Hebrews back in Exodus 2. By the end, with massive assistance from above, he has killed off all of Egypt and united all the Israelites in song. He continues, the people too have made progress. Having begun by crying out from their passivity to no one in particular, they conclude with growing agency and increased knowledge of and reverence for the Lord. They've courageously marked their doors. They've bravely entered the sea. And we have hope for the people of Israel. Let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Exodus 14 and 15 today. 
First two segments, we wrapped up chapter 14, which is the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance from Pharaoh, the final deliverance. Chapter 15, we covered in the last segment, which is the Song of Moses and then the Song of Miriam at the end. And now we're in the very end of chapter 15, the story of the waters. The passage begins carping about God and bitter waters, and it ends with camping with God at sweet waters. And the question that's arises so far is that God is a protector, but how is he going to be as a provider? And this opening story post-Red Sea provides an answer to this. Verses 22 through 24, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? So verse 22, they go into the desert three days. They don't find water. They finally find water in verse 23 in Marah, but its bitter waters are either unpleasant, salty, or dangerous. Wilmington describes Exodus so far as a bloody river, a backed-up sea, and now a bitter brook. This is after a spiritual high, so I think there's an interesting analogy there. And ironically, their problem is also connected to water, where their greatest victories have been. It's like Jesus who went into the desert on the strength of 40 days and fasting. But here, the people of Israel fail miserably. Verse 24, the key word is grumbling. The word is only found in Exodus 15 through 17, Numbers 14 through 17, and companion text. It's in marked contrast to the hope they had expressed in the Song of Moses, particularly chapter 15, verses 13 through 18, and the grumbling is against Moses. They're either ignoring God or their faith that Moses was really connected to God, and so I think we can say really this is in essence grumbling against God, that they have unreal or poor expectations of what God would do. They've been promised a land of milk and honey, and just after the Red Sea, you can picture them saying, really, God? Are you kidding me? Matyer says, if our ancestors were anything like us, they may have erred significantly at the point of expectation and and in particular found themselves baffled to discover that the pilgrim path is a place of conflict. Another truth we see here is the dilemma of blessings and the problem of living by circumstances and sight. When the blessings aren't there, now what? If we live by sight and not by faith, we get ourselves in trouble. If we live on circumstances and happenstance, not character, joy, contentedness, and the like, we either have everything we want all the time or we're going to be disappointed. Matthew Henry says the greatest joys and hopes are soon turned into the greatest griefs and fears with those who live by sense only and not by faith. And we see that in the remarkable turnaround from where they were at with the spiritual high back at the end of chapter 14 and the praise and worship of chapter 15. So the root cause here is they haven't learned to trust God, as we saw from Father Abraham, particularly later in his walk, most notably in the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22. But this also relates to us as well, the sort of experiences we have and the questions we ask about why and how long. Alec Motyer has a great quote here. He points to the two common answers offered by Christians, the malevolence of Satan and our straying out of God's will into sin. And he says there can be an element of truth in both these explanations, but neither of them tell the whole story, nor are they the explanation that we find in Exodus. The Israelites were in the wilderness at this point because the Lord had led them there. 
a pillar of cloud. Don't forget that. God has led them to this point, to this moment of difficulty. He's with them, even in their difficult circumstances. So the first half of verse 25, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So Moses cried out to the Lord. Of course, that's what Israel should have done. And in their thirst, it's interesting that they, or at least he, is driven to God. Reminds us of a number of great passages, Psalm 42, 1 and 2, As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Psalm 63, 1, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they would be filled. And finally, Jesus again, John 4, 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The answer here, the Lord showed him a piece of wood, literally a tree, and Moses threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. We have bitter water and good wood. Alec Meyer plays with the question of whether the tree was changed in the moment or had always been there and ready to go. He calls it an anticipatory providence and the idea that God had prepared that tree from long before Israel showed up to be there. Either way, it's a miracle. Either the tree is transformed or the miraculous providential placement of a tree years before to be there in the moment of need. Now, why this particular solution? The water is redeemed through an ordinary item, not particularly flashy. It's also sort of odd. God will make a way. His ways are not our ways. This will inform Moses' faith and strengthen his leadership. But I really like what Ian Thomas does with this. He talks about 1 Peter 2.24, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the word tree or wood that we've talked about, so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. Thomas finds an analogy to justification here. Quote, the waters indeed are dark, deep, and bitter within the soul of man, but the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the waters, and they are stirred, and the soul is awakened, and at last the soul, convicted of its sin, cries out to God, and then the wood or tree, the cross, makes the water sweet. It's too long of a story to tell here, but Thomas goes on to compare this to the other similar story where salt is thrown in bad water in 2 Kings 2, 19 through 22, and he explains that as sanctification before concluding it is the tree, Christ's cross for bitterness, it is the salt, the Holy Spirit, for barrenness. The rest of 25 and 26, there the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So verse 25, a decree and a law, and it's conditional. This is a covenant that has conditions. Verse 26 begins with, if you... And the following things, listen carefully to God's voice, do what is right in his eyes, pay attention to God's commands, and keep all his decrees. It's interesting that one and three set up two and four, right? Listening carefully and paying attention is necessary for doing what is right and keeping his decrees. Likewise, Moses is not just chucking any old tree in the water, he's chucking a particular tree that obedience is to particular commands 
of God. The structure of 26 is awesome. If you, I will. Specifically, none of the diseases that God had brought on the Egyptians would be brought on the Israelites. This seems to refer to the plague of boils in particular. In any case, it's interesting that God motivates it by calling himself the Lord who heals you, who takes away disease, as he had done with the water. So we have the good wood of verse 25 and the great physician of verse 26. The purpose of all this is testing, verse 25. It's a key theme in this middle section of Exodus. We'll see the verb again in chapter 16, verse 4, chapter 17, verses 2 and 7. And testing is different than tempting. Testing intends for a positive result. Tempting intends for a negative result. I test my students, hoping they'll do well. I'm not tempting them. Tempting aims at a negative outcome. That said, in God's economy, temptations are also tests. They're intended to be positively dealt with. All right, verse 27 to wrap up. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. So they go from carping to camping. They go from how long to the need to be patient in faith and hope. They end up at Elam with 12 springs and 70 palm trees, It's an oasis or mini paradise back to Eden of a sort from Genesis 3. 12 and 70 are noteworthy numbers, godly numbers. Parallels the number of followers that Christ had, 12 and 70 in Luke 9 and Luke 10. And there's one spring for each tribe. It's also intriguing to think that Moses' knowledge of the area, part of his wilderness training, enabled him to find Elam more easily. In any case, it's a figurative picture of provision and abundant life in Christ. They camped near the waters. Reminiscent of Psalm 23, the opening, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And that's what's happened to Israel here. The grumbling has been turned into contentedness, at least for the moment. Matthew Henry contrasts this with the Mara pre-tree waters and says, Though God may for a time order his people to encamp by the waters of Mara, yet that shall not always be their lot. See how changeable our condition is in this world. Now, of course, that's not always the case. We're not promised earthly blessings, so it may not be till heaven that our lot is changed. But often, we just need to be patient. Often, things do change. Things come and go, blessings come and go. God's always with us, and we expect things to always be on a spiritual high and always expect to be materially provided for, and life is usually more complicated than that. Well, that's it for today. An interesting story to wrap things up with an amazing connection to the cross of Christ. Lord, thank you so much for the intricacy and beauty of your word that a passage that's obscure in Exodus 15 could point us forward to the cross of Jesus. We thank you for turning our bitter waters into sweet waters. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that we would not grumble, that we would not focus on the current moment, that we'd have gratitude for the great things you've done for us, for the great and good God that you are. Lord, we pray that we would be patient and waiting in faith and hope all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Remember, the podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. And I hope you'll join me next time on The Word Diet.